July 18, 2021. Summer on the Mount. Week 2. Salt and Light. I used to live in the middle of nowhere. At least that's how it looked to some people I knew. My entire life has taken place in the Buffalo Niagara region with two exceptions. When I went off to Houghton College as a student, and then after 12 years of pastoral ministry, when I had an invitation to go down and serve in Christian higher education at my alma mater, and our family moved down to Houghton. If you don't know where Houghton is, uh, Houghton is a Christian college, part of our family, part of the Wesleyan family. And it's down between Rushford Lake and Letchworth State Park in a beautiful little corner of Allegheny County, uh, which is just, uh, we loved living down there. I love my time as a student, loved living there. If there's a downside to living there, it's that it's 45 minutes from the nearest Walmart or Lowe's or Home Depot, about 30 minutes from the nearest Tim Hortons. Uh, one time I was working on my, my dishwasher and it was missing one little part and I just sat on the floor sulking for a minute because I knew it was going to take me at least two or three hours by the time I went, found the part, came back for the, all for this 90 second part. That's the one downside of it. But there's lots of opportunities, lots of outdoor opportunities and trails and, and to be right in the vicinity of Letra State Park itself is a treat. So whenever anybody comes to visit Houghton, a lot of times they'll ask the question, like, boy, it's a beautiful campus, great place, world-class college, but why here? <laughs> why here of all places? My own opinion on that is that part of why Houghton is where it is is because it was founded in 1883, about the same time that our nation was starting to create national parks. And about the same time that New York created Niagara Falls as the first state park, recognizing that Niagara Falls had been really abused and kind of trampled on. And so they protected it and pulled it back and made it the state park that it could be preserved as kind of a sanctuary. And they'd recognize what had happened at Niagara Falls. And we're trying to do the same thing with Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon and other places out west. And at that same time, in 1883, Willard J. Houghton founded Houghton College right where it was as part of a recognition that when you create a, a, a college or university campus in an environment like that, it creates a unique community and it's a unique place to study and to learn and to work. And I benefited from that. A lot of students go to Houghton despite the location and by the time they graduate realize that the location is one of the best things about it. But there's another story that people tell about Houghton, about why it, where, why it is where it is. And they say that Houghton was founded to be 20 miles from the nearest sin and that it was a retreating away from the world, this, this attempt to get as far away from the world as possible, to get away from worldly influences and evil people and to go as far away as possible. And I don't know whether that's true or not. I can't say that Houghton is 20 miles from the nearest Tim Hortons, but even though there's some coffee shops and stuff emerging right in town right now, actually. But I want to hover on that thought for a moment, that idea of being 20 miles from the nearest sin. Because the world, the, the church has often had a complicated relationship with the world. At times, we have either resorted to withdrawal or retreat or to attack, and our re reaction and relationship with the world is a big part that defines who we are and what, what non-believers think of us. And Jesus talked a lot about how his followers should interact with the world, how, what our relationship should be like with the world, whether that's withdrawal or retreat or whether it's being influenced by the world in ways that are not always helpful. And he talks about this as one of his themes in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in our second week of our series uh, called The Summer on the Mount, where we're spending uh, July and August looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is the core of Jesus' teaching for his disciples. But in addition to that, he has a parable in Luke chapter 13 where he talks about how we should interact with the world and what, what kind of a relationship he wants his followers to have with the world at large and the world around us and our culture. 
And so my name is Steve Dunmire. I used to live in the middle of nowhere, but now I live here. And, and I'm grateful to be a teaching pastor here at Watermark Wesleyan. And thanks for your, your welcome to, to me and my family this past year. And we're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 13. Let me pray for us before we do. Thanks, God, for this morning, for everyone gathered here, for the journey that you have them on and that you've brought us all together in this place today. Maybe the only day in our lives that this particular mix of people will be in this particular place and we receive this day from you as a gift. Spirit, would you speak to us as we open up your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 13, beginning verse 6, says that then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. Now, to our ears, we just hear the story about a tree, and you might picture an apple tree or a, a pine tree. Uh, a pear tree, or I've got a row of blue spruces in my yard that I just adore. I've never had a fig tree in my yard. This is what a fig tree looks like right here. Uh, we've got a picture of it here. This is a picture of a fig tree. I don't know if there are many, very many fig trees in Western New York, but I know that figs don't really like our climate in terms of growing. They need a little more uh, tropical, a little warmer environment. And so we're not very familiar with fig trees. But in the first century Jewish mind, this is not just another story about a tree. This is not just an agricultural story. The fig tree had rich symbolism, rich significance for this first century Jewish mind. That there, there are several allusions in the Old Testament to this promise about a time when, when it will happen that every believer will get to sit under his own fig tree with his own vine over his head, which is a, a kind of a symbol of tranquility and peacefulness that they pictured sitting under a fig tree that, the way that you and I might picture sitting on a hammock that it's peaceful, it's restful, it's tranquil. And so there's this rich symbolism of just like being on vacation, like a tropical paradise sitting under a fig tree. So that's kind of what some of the symbolism is. But it also had some political symbolism to it or some national symbolism. It was kind of a national symbol of Jewish identity in a lot of ways. In the same way that if, if a political candidate were to start at, a national, at one of the political conventions uh, in the next few years and started off their speech by talking about uh, a bald eagle that couldn't fly, you would know that they're making a political statement. They're talking about our nation. They're talking about more than just another bird. A bald eagle just isn't another bird, and a fig tree to the Jewish mind isn't just another tree. So when Jesus starts this parable by talking about a fig tree that isn't bearing fruit, we know that this isn't just another tree. He's not just making an agricultural story here, but he's talking about something of deeper significance. So it raises the question, how often should a fig tree bear fruit? And there are some places that say that the, the fig fruit season is like three or four months. Kenneth Bailey, a scholar and a theologian who lived in the Middle East for, for all or most of his life, says that actually fig trees, sycamore fig trees, which this is probably about, would have a, about a 10-month fruiting season. So if you could walk up to a fig tree that and reasonably expect to find figs on that thing 10 months out of the year, and so when the vineyard owner walks into the, fig, into the vineyard and he finds that this fig tree, once again, for three years, has not had any figs on it, that's a pretty bad sign. I thought it'd be fun this week to go out and find some figs and to bring in some fresh figs to show you. And I went to several stores and could not find any fresh, fresh figs. You might have a fig guy. Apparently, I don't have a fig guy. The only thing I could find in our grocery stores here was Fig Newtons. <laughs> And by the way, I found out this week that apparently Fig Newtons are the third best-selling cookie in America. The third, Fig Newtons, which begs the question, why? <laughs> Do these people not know about Oreos? What's going on? So 
We've got a fig tree growing in a vineyard, which is a common practice. It's not bearing any fruit. You would expect probably 10 months out of the year you'd have figs on this thing, no figs for three straight years. The vineyard owner comes into the, the, the vineyard, sees this fruitless fig tree, and this is what he says in response in verse seven. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for the fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? So the estate owner has had it. And his response is, enough with this. We don't have time and space for a tree that's just going to provide shade. It should be bearing fruit. Let's chop this thing down. And because of all the symbolism we know that fig trees had, we know that Jesus is not just talking, again, about an agricultural story. He's talking about the nation as a whole. He's talking about the idea of judgment, that there is coming a time when every fruitless tree will be chopped down, when, when wicked people will be punished, when, when evildoers will be punished, where there's coming a time when God will finally and absolutely set things right, when there will be a reckoning and, and Jesus will find, the Lord will finally set things right. And, and we're looking forward to that day when the Lord finally sets things right. And so this seems to be a parable about judgment. And every day there are believers and Christians who say, how long, O Lord? Isn't it about time, Lord? Hey, Lord, have you watched the 11 o'clock news lately? Have you scrolled for a minute on Twitter lately? I think it's about time. I think this would be a good time. Lord, how much longer until you intervene? Every day there are Christians who say, Lord, let her rip. It's, I think the time has come. Chop it down. It's time to, to let the axe swing and finally to have your way. And in fact, there are some Christians who would even say, Lord, how much longer can you not intervene without having it tarnish your reputation? How much longer can you just sit by and let the things that are happening in the world continue to happen without people thinking that you're not very good at your job? Lord, don't you think it's about time to just let her rip and to chop, chop down the tree, to intervene and to get us out of here and get on our way? Then the gardener speaks up. We've got this option of chopping down the tree. In fact, the, the word there in the original language actually says dig it up because in their culture, they wouldn't just chop down a tree. They would actually dig it out by the roots. It's sort of the same way that we chop down a tree and then grind the stump. They would dig it up. And the, the landowner says, let's chop it down. But the vineyard tender, the gardener says in verse eight, sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So now there's two options. You got the owner of the estate saying, chop it down. Three years is, is long enough to wait. It's time to chop this thing down. And then you've got the gardener who says, no, it's a good tree. It's a fine tree. Let's give it one more year. Let's tell you what, let me just kind of dig around it and fertilize around this tree. And then we'll see if, if in a year's time, there's no figs on it, then have your way. Fine, chop it down. I'll chop it down then. But let's give it a year. And in fact, this is, the, the NIV says the word fertilizer, but in the original language, the word is actually manure. So, and this is the only place in the New Testament that the word manure shows up. Yes, Jesus is telling a poop story. Uh, you're welcome, all the third graders in the room. You're welcome. Uh, but manure is hard to ignore. We spent eight years living in North Collins, just a little south of here, and had a wonderful time pastoring a church there, and uh, wonderful folks in that church, love those folks, and we had very dear friends who had a farm in North Collins. And every once in a while, we'd, we'd look at a day like today and look outside and say, oh, it's a beautiful day. Let's, let's eat outside on the patio. And we'd grab our lunch and open up the door and go, nope, back inside of the kitchen. Here we go. Because manure is hard to ignore. Manure is slow, but it's hard to, hard to mistake. Chainsaws are fast. Manure is slow. And so now we've got two options. Are we going to chop it down? Are we going to put some manure around the tree and give it another year? And what's going to happen? And in classic Jesus fashion, he just stops the story right there. That's where the story ends. 
The gardeners made this proposal, the landowners made this proposal, and he doesn't tell us how the story ends. It's really kind of annoying of Jesus that he would do it this way, but he just kind of drops the story and leaves us to wonder what would happen. It might be kind of fun if we were to divide up in teams and, and have a debate about this and have team, you know, you might ask, if, are you in team chainsaw or are you in team manure? Which would you choose in your case? And some of you know which one your spouse is or which one your family members are. They're quick to cut things down or they're, they're very patient with things. And it might be interesting to, to think about this, to have a team over here to put together an argument about the reason why we should just chop down the tree and a team over here to talk about why it's time to give it another year, maybe even two years, and, and to spread plenty of manure around this thing. I don't know who would want to pick to be on team manure or probably should have called that a different name. But Jesus doesn't tell us the end of the story. And as you think for a moment which team you would be on, Jesus is firmly on team fertilizer. He is firmly in the camp of fertilize it and give it another year, and he lays out his patient plan of fertilizer in the, in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13, where he says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? No longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. The town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the fertilizer that God is putting around that fruitless fig tree in the hopes that one more year it might just bear fruit. And, and Jesus is saying that, yes, there's coming a time. There will come a time when there will be a reckoning. Yes, there's coming a time when the ax will swing and every fruitless tree will be chopped down. There is coming a time when this will not just go on forever. There is coming a time when the Lord will intervene. But for right now, God's plan is patience. God's plan is to give it a little more time. God's, God's plan is to work in the conditions of the world, to work in the conditions that are at hand, and to hope that maybe, just maybe, things might turn around. And you are his plan. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are his plan of patience patience with fertilizer around that fruitless victory. And this passage, if I can be really honest, has evoked a lot of guilt in my life. A lot of times I'll hear this passage and think, oh, I'm the salt of the earth and I'm losing my saltiness. I'm no good for anything other than being trampled underfoot. Or I'm, the, I'm supposed to be the light of the world, but I'm hiding it under a basket. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. And there's this guilt in my, like, oh, I'm not letting my light shine. I'm not doing enough. I'm, and I'm a professional Christian, and I feel guilty about this stuff that I'm not talking about Jesus enough. But I don't think that's Jesus' point here at all. This isn't a guilt trip. I think he's talking about the automatic consequence of salt and light and the work that they do all by their own, all on their own. Not that you have to try to be light, but that you are light. Not that you have to try to be salty, but you are salt, and you're going to make a difference in the world. Let's talk about these two things. First, salt. He says, you're the salt of the earth. And that, that phrase that Jesus, that statement Jesus makes about, but what if a salt loses its saltiness, what then? And that's confused a lot of people. We feel like we can lose our saltiness as Christians. But let me just ask the question, when was the last time you checked the Best Buy date on your salt in your cabinet? No, of course you don't, because salt doesn't go bad. You know, if all the other seasonings we use in our kitchen, all the other seasonings you have in your pantry, uh, they're made by by. by What's the word I'm looking at? They're made by plants. So you take, you know, pepper and paprika and thyme and, and I'm running out of rosemary. Oh, they're all made, they're plant-based. But salt, it comes from a rock. So all those other seasonings, they can all go bad, but salt never goes bad. As long as you just leave it alone, it's going to be, you can buy, you could, your grandmother could have bought salt, left it in her pantry for 50 years, and it'll still be good today is the day she bought it. 
Salt doesn't go bad. You can count on salt to be salty. You can always count on salt to do its job. And I think that's part of what Jesus is saying. You're the salt of the earth. It's stable. It's consistent. You can always rely on salt to do what it's meant to do. When was the last time you went out to dinner and they, you ordered your meal and they brought it out to you and you sit down and you reach for the salt shaker and you part, start putting some salt on it, take that first bite and say, oh, waiter, get, the salt is bad. Send it back. I, I need to hold this. The salt is bad. It ruined the whole, no, salt doesn't go bad. Salt is stable and consistent. There's the story of a first century rabbi who was asked, rabbi, what should we do with salt that loses its saltiness? And he said the first century equivalent of feed it to Bigfoot. Because salt that goes bad is as rare and hard to find as Bigfoot. I hear that Elvis loves salt that doesn't have saltiness anymore. Give it to Elvis. Give it to the Loch Ness Monster. Salt doesn't lose its saltiness. And Jesus is describing an objective fact that you are a difference maker in the world. He talks about light. He says, nobody lights a lamp and puts it in the closet and shuts the door. Nobody lights a candle and puts a basket over it. No, you light a light and it fills the whole house with light. And that's the same impact you have. Not that you have to try to be light. You are a light. You are a light. And your light shines through the whole house and everybody sees it. It's like lights at nighttime. It just shines out in the darkness and and everybody can see it from miles around. It's like fireworks on the 4th of July. You don't have to try to look for it. You just know it. The fireworks are going off on the 4th of July. All of a sudden the baby's crying, the dog's barking, and everybody's awake and everybody's miserable. That's what you are in the world. You are light and it's hard to miss it. And Jesus is describing an objective fact here that his people don't even have to try to do it. Just by being who we are and following after Jesus and trying to be like Jesus and, and seeking to obey his commands in our lives, we automatically have an influence on the world and we are his patient plan of fertilizing the fruitless fig tree with the hopes that it will make a difference and it's nearly automatic because the heart of God is always crying out, one more, one more, just a little bit longer, maybe this time, just a little more salt, just a little more light, just one more year with manure. Maybe this is be the year. In fact, in the UK this year, they, they polled some people during the, at the height of the pandemic, and they asked people in the United Kingdom uh, whether it was good or bad to have a church in their community, whether having a church right in their neighborhood uh, was, was helpful for their community. And they found that at the height of COVID, when, when lockdown orders were most strict, that the reputation of the church had improved by, by as much as double, that people were twice as likely to say that it was good to have a church in their community. They were twice as likely to say that uh, the churches in their community were making a difference, which is staggering when you think about what it was like back about a year ago and we couldn't meet and, and we weren't able to gather in this way, that at that time, people were saying it is so good to have churches here, that people, even hardened skeptics, were most, most likely to say, I'm so thankful there's a church in our community. How could that possibly be the case? And I think it's because when the pandemic hit and everything shut down, Christians, we just kept doing what we do. We kept being salt and light. We kept being fertilizer in our community. And we just kept serving people and helping people. And a lot of that for so long happens under the radar. It happens behind the scenes and people don't notice it. But when everything was under lockdown orders, everybody couldn't help but notice. And they were inspired and it gave them hope at a time when people needed hope. Even in the United States, 80% of Americans say that it is good to have a church in their neighborhood because they see all the ways that we are salt and light. Jesus is describing an objective fact that his followers make things better wherever we go. No guilt, no shame, no twist in the dagger. It just happens. Where we go, we make a difference. So two ways I want you to think about how this can apply to your life. First is to think about you know, sometimes I look out at the state of the world and I get overwhelmed. 
I see all the need. I see all the hurt. I see all the people who are suffering. I see Christians behaving badly. And it, it's easy to get overwhelmed by all that and to get discouraged. And I just want to encourage you, don't look at the Christians who are making headlines. Look at the Christians who are making a difference. This week, check out what Eight Days of Hope is doing and the way that they're making a difference right in the heart of Buffalo and, and helping people who have deep needs to fix up their homes at no cost to them. Go check out the Salvation Army and the work that the Salvation Army has been doing at 960 Main Street for generations, serving the least and the lost. Check out the Buffalo City Mission and 716 Ministries and Jericho Road and Path. I can't find a homeless shelter in Western New York that wasn't started by Christians. I can't find a soup kitchen or a food pantry that wasn't started by Christians. They may be out there, but I can't find one. And in almost every community, when you look at the people who are helping the least and the lost, often you go back to the beginning and it was started by people who had a love for God and wanted to make a difference where they were and they were motivated to serve their neighbor by their love for God. And every time, boy, I'm telling you, every time I get discouraged or I think, boy, ministry is hard or, or there's bad things happening in the church or there's Christians behaving badly or there's so much need, I look at some of those stories and every time I'm encouraged. Go check out some of those ministries. And if, you're, if you may just want to come back next week and say, give me 20 more names of ministries and I'll give you 20 more names and send you out there to be encouraged. It's, it, you can't help but be encouraged. And once you've been encouraged by those, then be emboldened to go out and do what you're already doing and be an influence in your neighborhood and in your school and in your workplace and in your family and to find those ways that you can be, be fertilizer around a fruitless fig tree. Not because you have to, not because you feel guilted into it, because you know that you're on the winning team, that you are God's plan for a fruitless world. And while this is primarily about big picture societal issues and the world around us, I can't help but think that some of you are coming in this morning about ready to toss in the towel. There's some area of your life where you're saying, boy, it's, it's time, let her rip, chop it down. Time to quit, pull the plug, let's get out of here. And whatever that area might be in your life, maybe you just need somebody to come into your life today like the gardener did for the vineyard owner and say, give it time. Just a little bit longer. I'm not telling you to stay in a house that's on fire. I'm not telling you to stay in an abusive situation. I'm not telling you to stay in a toxic environment. But if, if, there's, if safety is not a concern, maybe, maybe, just maybe, give it time. And if you think maybe that your situation, man, it's too far gone. Steve, you don't know about my situation. Uh, or, or the world, look at the state of the world. Can there really be an improvement? Can, is there really enough salt and light? Is there enough fertilizer in the world to make a difference in the situation we're facing? If you're looking for a sign that maybe there is, I've got a sign for you right here. Check out this sign. When you pull into Houghton, there's this sign that a lot of people uh, who live in Houghton and have attended Houghton, don't, have never spotted this sign. This is right on Route 19 in the hamlet of Houghton. And there's a story behind this sign about Jockey Street. About the time when the Erie Canal was reshaping New York State and reshaping the Northeast, you know, Erie Canal uh, made Buffalo and Rochester, Syracuse and Albany what they are. It made New York City this, the, the booming metropolis that it is and reshaped the, the, the economic structure of the, of the nation in many ways. And and so there were people at that time saw the impact that the Erie Canal was having and said, you know what, let's build another canal. Let's build a Genesee Valley Canal down the southern tier. And maybe that can have the same impact. The Erie Canal was a smashing success. The Genesee Valley Canal was an absolute disaster. Uh, they, they wasted a lot of money on it and nothing really came out of it. One of the most enduring legacies of the, of the Genesee Valley Canal 
is these little boat towns were uh, emerging along the canal where the boatmen would gather and, and they're, they're rowdy. And there's one particular boat town that rose up in Houghton called, and they called it Jockey Street. And over, almost overnight, 14 taverns popped up there in that little town and, and there were horse races and a lot of carousing and it was a rowdy group. Uh, it was kind of the Las Vegas of the Southern Tier. What happened on Jockey Street stayed in Jockey Street. And what happened on Jockey Street was not pretty. And it was pretty bad. And around that time, there was a boatman named Ed Palmer who went up on a hill overlooking Jockey Street. And he was deeply moved, troubled by what he was seeing in Jockey Street. And he said, oh God, would it be that someday this place would be as known for righteousness as it is known right now for wickedness? And not long after that, the canal was abandoned and closed and the boatmen dispersed. And a man named Willard J. Houghton felt a holy disturbance, a deep call from God to start a Christian school right there where Jockey Street had been. He felt this deep burden that he could not shake, that he needed to start this school right there. And so 1883, Willard J. Houghton started what became Houghton College. And people, for young men and women from around the world who, to gather there and to learn and then to be launched out, propelled into the world where they can make a difference in schools and in hospitals and in business places and in churches and as missionaries all around the world, all from this little place. And so whenever I hear somebody come to Houghton and visit that place and say, boy, this place in the middle of nowhere, what's it supposed to be 20 miles from the nearest sin? And I always smile and say, you know, it hasn't always been that way. And maybe somebody... Someday we'll look at your marriage or your family and say, boy, you guys just seem to get along so well. It's, you have such good relationships. And you might smile and say, you know, it hasn't always been that way. Or they might look at your, your vocation or your garden, or they might look at our church and the influence we have in our community. They might look at Western New York as a whole and say, man, it's thriving, it's booming. Look at all the great things that are happening. Look at the influence that Christians have in our society. And we might say, you know, it hasn't always been that way. I like to think that one day the, the vineyard owner was back in the vineyard and somebody was there just pulling uh, figs off the branches. The, these branches just sagging under the weight of all these figs growing on the branches. And the person who's pulling figs off the branches sees the owner coming and says, boy, you're so lucky to have a fig tree like this. And he smiled and said, lucky? No, it didn't happen by accident. You gotta give it time. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are God's patient plan for the fruitless fig tree. Give it time. God, we thank you for the patience you've had with us. We thank you for the, the heart that you have for a hurting world and a lost world and for the joy and the privilege to be a part of your plan. Lord, help us to be salt and light. Help us to, to be fertilizer in just the right places where our neighborhoods and our families and our workplaces and our, our region need it most. We thank you that your mercy does triumph over judgment. Help us to make good use of the time, we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's lift our voices.